everybody. Thank you for listening to the Coach Fury podcast. For those that don't know me, my name is Coach Fury. I offer personal, semi-private, and online training based out of New York City in Brooklyn, New York. Um, I'm also a fitness educator, and I teach for some groups where I travel and I run workshops. Uh, keep an eye out for me if you visit coachfury.com slash courses. You'll see where I'm coming up. I've got HKCs, RKCs, DVRT workshops, and original strength workshops coming up. Uh, and of course, if you live in the New York area, the Brooklyn area, come train with me. Uh, I love to help people live their best lives, uh, get stronger by the minute, and to die mighty. Kim and her friends are putting together this Biting Back NYC, and they've got over 40 artists coming in, donating works of art, and it's going to be December 1st through the 3rd. If you go to bitingbacknyc.com, you can check that out. All proceeds from the art and the raffles are going to go to Animal Haven, which is a shelter that we actually got our pit bull, Ramona, from. Uh, so this money's actually going to feed back and show the, the brighter side of having animals, the brighter side of pit bulls in particular amongst all pets. So please support that. Um, for information, again, bitingbacknyc.com, and also check out coachfury.com. Hey, folks, I am very excited to have my sister, Fury, Melody Schoenfeld, on this podcast. And Melody and I met, I guess, through the Book of Faces and then the Kettlebell community. Uh, we first met in person at a workshop called the Summit of Strength, where a bunch of former Master RKCs used to get together and talk about stuff outside of just kettlebells. And it was an amazing thing at our friend Dustin's place in Guthrie, Oklahoma. And uh, she immediately uh, picked me up. Gave me a big hug, and I immediately fell in love with her. So I'm really excited to talk to her because she is a former New Yorker and just one of those people that I'm always excited to hear from and see uh, has a, a really great heart. Melody, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Oh, geez, the hard questions. Um, well, I am a strength athlete, and I am a trainer in the Pasadena, California area. And I own a little studio called Flawless Fitness. It's a little 750 square foot space uh, because I'm a control freak and I don't want to have anybody else in there with me. <laughs> um, so I have that and um, I am a strongman competitor and a powerlifting competitor, which I need to get back into competing for. Um, and... Uh, and oh and i own another company uh called evil monkey enterprises it's like a little um we make um we're a very small company we're two people uh, me and my welder and we make um kind of unusual fitness equipment so we make things called maces which is it's kind of like a giant ball on the end of a stick that um you can fill the ball up with water but they use it in india um in competition that you kind of swing it around your head. Uh, it's really kind of a fun sport. Um, so anyway, we make steel ones that are fillable with water or um, steel shot or sand or the soles of your X's or whatever you want. And we make, um, we make globe barbells and globe dumbbells and we make monkey bars and squat rigs and you name it, we make it. So we, so that's another thing that I do. Awesome. And the other thing that you do, uh, and I one day need to see you perform live, is you're in, in how many cover bands right now? Is it two? The Deep Purple um, and the Maiden one? Well, I'm in the Deep Purple one, but it's kind of on hiatus because our keyboardist moved to New Mexico. That'll do it. Yeah. And also because it was a really hard band to book, believe it or not, like every booker is like Deep Purple is nobody nobody asks for deep purple. So it's a really hard band to book, but it still exists <laughs> theoretically. <laughs> um, I have my maiden tribute. Um, I do, I have some original stuff out there and I, um, and I'm, I am part of a project called three ring, which is an original metal project. That is my friend Adam's project. And I just kind of sing on it, but that's a lot of fun. Um, we got, we have over a quarter of a million views on our, on our face, on our, um, at the the first song we put out together so that's pretty cool that's amazing actually yeah it's pretty cool it's on youtube uh called if look up three ring can anybody hear me you can see it up there all right folks look that look that up so let me ask you first where, what happened what hit first the love of metal or the fitness uh, music yeah around how, how old were you when you heard your first maiden album or maiden song dude you want to hear something so funny i grew up on hair metal I never heard Iron Maiden before I joined the Iron Maiden band. No way. Serious. I never heard them before. Get I off just, my podcast. I was just never, I was never exposed to it. So, um, 
So I listened to tons of hair metal. I, I, I was kind of into Metallica, like their older stuff. I really liked Metallica. And whatever I heard in metal, I liked. I had just never heard Maiden for whatever reason. And um, my uh, the drummer of the Maiden band, I met him and he was like, well, I would like you to sing for this band. And so I went and auditioned for them. And I guess they liked me, but I was like, I don't feel like I belong here. I don't feel like I could do this. And he kind of um, encouraged me to keep at it. And I love it. So I'm the biggest Maiden fan now, but I was late. <laughs> Who's your favorite hair metal band? Oh, man, that's a tough question. I used to be rocking with Dokken pretty heavy. <laughs> Dream really Warriors. Oh, yeah. Oh, that's awesome. That, I, that totally threw me. I wasn't, I wasn't prepared for that. I know. It's crazy because I don't feel like I ever never heard Maiden now. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah. Do you remember what the first Maiden song was? What'd they play you? Flight of Icarus. Oh, my gosh. That's like a jam one, too. And that's my favorite one. That's one that doesn't get the love, like the mm -hmm. public love that it's, it fully deserves. Mm -hmm. It's funny. Like, so I got into Maiden through Number of the Beast. So it's going back like uh, – mm -hmm you know, quite, quite a few decades now. And I remember run of the Hills was like the song, right? It was like the first music video. And I remember having to like actually tune to a UHF channel to see yeah. it before MTV started playing it like late at night. UHF. And <laughs> it's funny that that's the song that resonated the most, I think in the most popularity. And it's like one of the only songs I find dated from made in sort of classic yeah. Catalog. It doesn't hold up as well as I thought, where so many other songs like Flight of Icarus or Where Eagles yeah. Dare or yeah. uh, Can I Play with Madness, like some of those later That's songs. That's my other favorite. <laughs> that like really hits more. And it's so weird. So Wasted Years now, as mm -hmm. I just turned 45, has this amazing impact on me. Like I'm like, holy crap, I'm like wasting years. Like <laughs> oh, this song's about me now. That's funny. Uh, how, how, how was it playing your first show as a maiden in a, in a maiden cover band and tell people the name of it so they can go see. We are called Ed Force One and, uh, it's been five years that we've been together now. Um, and, uh, yeah, at my first show, I was terrified because I didn't know that I could pull it off. Um, I, I wasn't real confident in, in, in being able to pull it off, but, uh, but I guess I pulled it off. <laughs> That's awesome. So, yeah. There's, there's so many metalheads. It, it seems like a clear, almost just, uh, if you're going to lift stuff, listening to metal thing, but mm -hmm. to have when, when people are actually like actively taking parts of it outside of just listening it, listening to music to lift, like performing mm -hmm. is just killer. I, mm -hmm. I'm such like a hack on the bass guitar. And when mm -hmm. I left MFF, one of my goals was like, I'm actually going to properly for the first time in my life, learn how to play bass guitar. And I gave myself a two year window to play mm -hmm. live. And I was so good at practicing for three months <laughs> and, then yeah. I have, and now it's collecting dust, like in its gig bag right now again. So I props to you. you. Yeah. I think I was always more enamored with the idea of playing live as opposed to learning how to play. I fall into that category. Well, you don't necessarily have to know how to play in order to play live. <laughs> you know, though, like, I, you know, I, I try to prescribe to the whole Ramon, Sid Vicious thing, but then you realize, like, they're still playing, like, pretty decent, or somebody oh, yeah, taught them how to play pretty decent. They know how to play. <laughs> yeah, I never really was able to, like, take that like idiot. I also don't think I realized as a kid, like, I realized, I think, 10 years ago that I, I think I must be tone deaf. Like, I'm not one of those guys that can, like, hear a song sit mm -hmm. down with the guitar and have any clue as to what's actually being played. Well, that doesn't mean you're tone deaf. That just means you don't know how to play the instrument. Maybe. You Maybe. don't know how to find the notes. I don't. That's like not just in yeah. music, Melody. Like <laughs> oh, in life. I was always the opposite because I, would, I always played all my instruments by ear. So like when I was five years old, I just sat at the piano and played what I heard. Um, and, uh, and my parents were like, okay, we need to get you piano lessons. And I sucked at the piano lessons because I didn't want to practice. I just wanted, I, I'm like, I already know how to play this. I don't need you to teach me. <laughs> and the same yeah. thing happened when I played cello is I, I learned the basics and then all of a sudden I could play stuff that I heard. I heard it, I played it. And my teacher was, I was driving my teacher nuts because I, um, I was playing stuff he hadn't taught me. I wasn't playing the stuff he had taught me. <laughs> and, um, and now I'm having the same issue with bagpipes is like, I, I'm, I'm learning bagpipes right now and I'm trying to 
play them by ear and I'm not learning the names of the movements, which I really need to be learning. Um, so that's, that's a bit of a problem. Like my teacher will be like, play a throw on D. And I'm like, okay, I don't know what that is right now. <laughs> I just love that you're going down the bagpipe uh, well right now. That's awesome. I always wanted to play them. And uh, I finally was like, dude, fuck it. Why, why haven't I played bagpipes yet? So, yeah. Yeah, it's funny. I picked up, I remember a bunch of my friends, uh, we went, there used to be this recording studio in Levittown, Long Island, and it was called Flipside, and they would let you rent space, like, you know, in the evening. Uh, I want to say, I guess it was illegal in terms of underage. So I'm not, I'm not, they're, they're gone, so no one's going to get arrested for this. Uh-huh. But we, like, rented, we rented a rehearsal space. We couldn't have been more than, like, 16 and they had gear you could rent. And literally it was like, one of them's like, my brother plays drums, so I'll play drums. Uh, I want to play guitar. And I was literally the last guy, and I've never picked up a bass guitar. I don't think I even knew the difference between, well, I think through Steve Harris, I knew four strings. I'm like, I guess I'm the bass player, right? Uh And I got really into it for a while, and I got like marginally where if you showed me how to play something, I could play it, but I couldn't figure out stuff. So I was Mm -hmm. like, you know, uh, tab books from like, you know, the Guitar Center were like... uh, Big for me. I'm forgetting the name of the local place where I, we used to get guitars before Guitar Center was the thing. Um, but I went for lessons, and it was one of those things where the teacher, I think I wanted such instant gratification, or he was lazy. I can't remember where that started or ended, but he tried to show me some scales. But then it was pretty much like, can you just show me how to play, like, an SOD song or a suicidal tendency song? And mm-hmm. it just degraded into, like, he wasn't even really showing me the real way to do it. It was, like, the lazy kid way to do it. Mm-hmm. And I think I just got disenfranchised with lessons, so I stopped going. I gotcha. Yeah. But, you know, I played out live twice, two shows in my life, and it was both nights of the student, faculty, senior <laughs> talent <Yeah>. show. <laughs> I don't wear, like, super baggy shorts and, like, a goofy T-shirt. I don't know. I was a weird <laughs> Um, So you got into music really young and mm-hmm. pursued it, and then when did the fitness start? That was not really young. Um, I, um, I, I, I danced. Um, my parents put me in dance classes because you're supposed to be cultured, you know. Um, but uh, in my family, you don't do sports. In my, unless you're a boy, I guess. In my family, you read books and you go to Harvard. And then you marry someone who went to Harvard and preferably a millionaire and then you have children and that is what you do. Um, and then you become a lawyer or a banker or a, uh, let's see, oh, a, a doctor. You can be a doctor. Those are the things you do in my family, but you don't really play sports. <laughs> so athletics, nobody was playing catch with me in the backyard. Athletics was not my thing. I was the last one picked for every sport. Um, I, uh, I got my mom to write me <laughs> a doctor's note to get me out of having to take swimming in high school because, um, I didn't know how to swim. Yeah. I didn't uh, either. You're not alone in that. Isn't this a New York thing, man? Like we don't swim. <laughs> I, I have this distinct memory of my mom. So I lived near this pool. This public pool was only like, you know, four blocks away from my house. And I have this memory of my mom taking me to swim lessons and mm-hmm. me feeling ill on the way. Yeah. And I thought I was, I was a pretty anxious, fearful kid. So I thought it was mm-hmm. just anxiety at first, but I'm like, mom, I feel horrible. And mm-hmm. it turns out I got pneumonia. Oh my so God. I, for, I think for a long time I equated swimming with me getting mm-hmm. pneumonia. Yeah. And I always hated, I love the feeling of being in the water. I hated the feeling of water going up my nose. Yes. And I think that freaked me out. So even to this day, I, like, I can swim. Um, yeah. I'm not like a, afraid of my life or anything, but like if I'm right. going to go jump in the water. Yeah. If I'm coming from a high, I'm holding my nose still. <laughs> like, yeah. No, see, I was in uh, like day camp and they threw me in the deep end with a life jacket. And Oof. even with the life jacket, I got fully submerged for a second and breathed water in. So I almost drowned. Uh. And so I'm super traumatized by water. So I can, I can swim. I know how, but I will not jump in. I cannot be thrown in or I will flip out. <laughs> I look like I'm drowning most of the time. Um, I can snorkel and I can scuba because if I do that, I can breathe and I can see and I'm okay. But if I feel the slightest bit out of control, I flip out. Interesting. Like they, they yeah. need to do a reality show. Two Furies go on a boat. <laughs> right, right. 
You know, it's funny you mentioned the drowning. I, I'd have to check with my mom to see if this is actually a real thing. But I have this memory of being super young, like baby age, like, you know, maybe like three or under. And I know I had family that lived in Ohio that had a pool. And I have this like memory of drifting, uh, sort of casually floating and drifting towards the deep end. And then my mom grabbing me. But like that could be some sort of weird dream. And I, and I don't want to Sigmund Freud that one out. But like, I yeah. think that actually happened. I feel like my mom might have confirmed that. But like, a super young, like embedded memory. So maybe that with the pneumonia. Yeah. Um, and then I had to be all brave. You know, when you have with, with the kids, I had to be super brave. So like, um, I've done a lot <laughs> to get over yeah. myself. So they don't pick up those fears. But it's funny, yeah. when, you, when you try to do it, they still pick up their own stuff, they're going to be frightful of anyway. Right. So what was the switch then? Because you're not alone. Clearly, you're not alone in your father. It tell, you know your brother is is somewhat super well known in the field. Yeah, was, yeah. Was he sort of a lead in for you? Yep. Yeah. yeah, it was basically him. Uh, what happened was I got out of college and um, I wanted to be a musician, and I figured I probably wasn't gonna make money doing that, so I needed a sensible job. Um, and so I just started taking random jobs. So I became an advertising executive in New York city. What agency and was that? I don't mean to cut you off. I it didn't... was called, called Doremus. I know that. You know Doremus? <laughs> yeah, I didn't, I didn't work with them, but I know the name cause that was my, you know, like sort of my gateway to visual effects was like film major through production jobs into yeah. editorial, into advertising agency. Um, where I was an well, assistant this, producer and then ended up in the post side. So I definitely have heard Oh, of yeah. This was like basically promotional items. So it was like, um, the, the big thing was Lucites. So like, you know, when banks, they make mm-hmm. these paperweights to celebrate mergers and things. And they love these things. They, they think Lucites are the best things ever. Um, and so it was my job to design these things and you know sell them so like they would say okay we want a lucite that's going to uh celebrate the merger of a you know a horse feed company and a dog food company so i had to figure out a lucite that might celebrate that you know so like maybe a horse and a dog smiling and it would be a lucite and it would have like a little pewter thing in it or sometimes or whatever so i would design these things and show it to them and then they would say yes or no and um yeah so that was my job <laughs> that's awesome you know the coolest thing ever done with lucite mm-hmm. those those clear guitars oh yeah remember that the first time i saw one of those was what was it the georgia straits or whatever that guy oh, they, they were playing um right yeah we Luc- never did one of those <laughs> i'd still rock a lucite bass guitar yeah yeah Spons- so i had I had this advertising job and it paid $20,000 a year in New York City. Um, <laughs> so that will buy you lunch, <laughs> maybe. And yeah. so I needed, uh, I needed to make money on the side. And my mom was like, well, why don't you... My brother at the time owned a, a little personal training place, kind of like what I, what I have going on. He had a little place that was just for women. It was called PTC for Women. My mom said, well, why don't you work for your brother? And so my brother was kind of like, all right, I guess you guys work for me. So I didn't know the first thing about weightlifting. And my brother said, all right, well, um, here's here's how you do these exercises. Here is a program that I have written. All you have to do is take them through the program and correct their form. So I learned the form. And I started teaching how to do this. And I was like, well, I don't want to talk the talk if I'm not walking the walk. So I took these little programs that he had for his clients and I would just go to the gym with them and, and start training or else I'd follow him around the gym like a puppy dog and, uh, and start working, you know, doing whatever he was doing. And after a while, um, I started learning about other things uh, within the strength community and I got really into it. Um, so I met, uh, you know, when I, when I moved out to LA, I started working for big box gyms. I worked for Equinox and, um, and while I was there, I met a guy named, oh, well, <laughs> I didn't just kind of randomly meet him. There was, you know, have you heard of the learning annex, you know, the learning annex? Yeah. yeah. Okay. So learning annex, they teach these like really cheap classes that you can take for six weeks or something. And so there was a one-time only flexibility class in the learning annex catalog that looked really interesting and it was run by a guy named Pavel Satsuli <laughs> and I was like I'd never heard of him before 
Um, so, but I wanted to take this class because it was like easy flexibility thing. And I was like, Oh, that sounds awesome. So I went and I was really interested in his, not in Pavel so much, although Pavel was cool. I was interested in his assistant. He had an assistant named Mike Mahler and Mike Mahler was this giant vegan. And I am also a vegan, but I am not giant. And, um, and what I, he was, um, super strong and muscular. And I was like, I don't know what he's doing, but whatever it is, I want to do what he's doing. So, um, I found out that he taught kettlebells and so he had a six and a half hour workshop. So I went to that in Las Vegas and I ended up, uh, <laughs> after six and a half hours, my forearms were so swollen. I couldn't put a long sleeve shirt on, <laughs> but I loved it. And so then I took the RKC exam and, you know, it just went from there. That is amazing. I mean, basically that course is the same way John Duquesne met Pavel, which led to the creation of the RKC. The Learning Annex class? Uh, uh, it, it wasn't the Learning Annex, but it was It was in Minnesota. It was a similar, like Pavel was doing a workshop and yeah. John showed up to take it. And, and yeah. that's how that introduction happened. Meg, could you imagine like back then where, you know, that would lead in the modern kettlebell movement? Right. And Mahler's, that's fascinating because Mahler's one of the guys when, so you've been in it way longer than me. And yeah. when I got in, it was, you know, uh, Maxwell and Mahler and Cotter, all those guys already sort of left the RKC. So yeah. I don't know if I was what you would call like the second or third guard of it. Right. Um, it had been around, I guess, like seven or eight years by the time I got involved. Maybe yeah. eight years by the time I got involved. Yeah. And I've never had the opportunity to work with any of them. And Mahler in particular is one that, you know, I, I listen to his podcast pretty regularly um, because a, there is the vegan thing, but the way that it's his, 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 his finding veganism came out of like, you know, the New York hardcore scene, the punk rock scene, mm -hmm. which is, you know, something I personally am not vegan, but we will talk about that in a little bit. You and I have spoke about it mm -hmm. is, you know, being vegan right now, I think in a lot of places, it's considered like very hippie um, and, and new. But what a lot of people don't realize is in the New York hardcore scene, um, you know, it, it was straight like just part, straight edge was part yeah. of it. Um, even if you were using drugs, uh, a lot of people just got and drinking, got rid of eating meat. Um, yeah. You know, bands like the Gorilla Biscuits and Youth of Today, all those cats. Mm. Like, uh, so that was something with Mahler that always connected with me and he's somebody he's very good friends with one of my mentors gavin van vlack and gavin's the one who introduced me to sandbags so mm -hmm. Mahler's one of those cats that one day i'd like to talk to uh whether it's on a podcast i'd love to take a course with him i know mm -hmm. the last time i was aware of him coming to new york i think it already been like involved in a lot of like you know uh rkc hard style stuff and i was just i couldn't justify necessarily taking another kettlebell course at the time yeah. Yeah. um but I had no idea that connection and, and how that related. So you were already vegan at the time? Yeah, I've been vegan for, I've been vegan since 2000. And what was the, what was the first thing that made you to decide to make that, that choice? I've actually kind of always been on that trajectory. Um, I've always been a huge animal lover. And when I was a little, little kid, I don't know, like five, um, my favorite food was lobster because I was an expensive child. And um, I used to love to see the lobsters in the tank. And it never occurred to me that those were the things that I was eating. And we were at some restaurant where they brought the live lobsters out to show you, to, for you to pick from. And I never ate lobster again. Yeah. And, um, and then uh, from there... Um, when I was in the eighth grade, we went on, we went to one of those like 18th century village things. You ever did, did that as a, yeah, we had one old, what old Westbury in Long Island. Yeah. 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 So I went to something, I think it might've been that one. I don't know. Maybe it was old. I think old Beth page. Yeah. It was something like that. Yeah. We went to that on a field trip and they just had a big cow, uh, hanging, you know, drip drying. Oh, wow. I didn't see and that. So I stopped eating red meat. I was done with that. And then in college, I just realized one day I hadn't eaten chicken in two months and I wasn't trying to. So I, I was like, all right, well, I can do that. And the vegan thing, like I didn't understand it. I was kind of like, vegans were very off-putting to me. Um, my experiences with them had been like, they were all in your face and they were, um, you know, almost like a, you know, a religious person who comes to your door and tries to convert you. It felt like that to me. And I didn't like that at all. Yeah. Um, 
so I was, I was very turned off to vegans in the first place. And then also I didn't really get it. I was like, well, you don't kill the cow to get the milk and you don't kill the chicken to get the eggs. So I don't get it. So what ended up happening was I met some vegans and I, and I just, and they were pretty cool. So I just kind of said, like, I don't understand the vegan thing. And they were like, well, why don't you go home and do some research and let us know what you find out? And that was the best thing anybody could have said to me. Um, they weren't like, God, ah, you're a horrible person. Because, you know, they were just like, look, figure it out on your own and then let us know what you find out. So I went home and I, you know, I realized how closely entwined the egg and the, and the milk industry were to the meat industry. And I was, I couldn't with my conscience with my moral compass continue to eat like that. So I just went completely vegan from there. Yeah. I, I, I have nothing but all the respect for that. It's, you know, I've, I've always been on the edge of that scene, like contemplating going vegan and I've just, you know, quite frankly, selfishly, I, I love, you know, the taste of meat and, sure. and hamburgers. Yeah. Um, and I, I will admit as I get older, I realize there's almost like a, a an easy factor of continuing not to change those things. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, I definitely have those ethical issues sometimes. And I do feel like a little bit of a sellout sometimes like uh, part of the problem that I haven't followed through with. And so maybe I'll get motivated after this one. Cause there's, there's a gorilla biscuit song. And it's just like one of the lines is like dogs and cats have all the luck, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. it's like, we view that like our pets as such a different thing than any other animal. Totally. And, you know, if you're hunting and stuff, like, you know, I, I have zero problems with that. Like if you're actually hunting your own food, but for most of us that are getting, um, you know, I definitely have issues with like traditional, uh, yeah. if you don't have it in you to kill it, then then I feel like there's some hypocrisy happening there. Yeah. Yeah, Mm. no, I think that's super fair. Yeah. Um, We should also point out, just going backtrack one minute, your your brother Brad uh, Mm -hmm. is, is, you know, very well known in the field. And that what I loved about both of your guys' approaches, though I'm not as familiar with his work, is – you know, in fitness, a lot of people just throw out ideas or, or mm-hmm. things. And I'm, I'm kind of one of them. Like I, I, you know, I try a program. I, I can't mm-hmm. necessarily say there's like a crap load of my own science behind it. There's like mm-hmm. other people's science that I've adapted, but you guys both really back up when you mm-hmm. write yeah. with science, which is really yeah. impressive. Yeah. Is that coming well, from the Harvard background, like the, the family upbringing or is that well, just, I didn't, I didn't go to Harvard, but I went, to, I went to the university of Wisconsin, Madison, um, so I'm, I, you know, I'm very- I mean, the, the Harvard influence, <laughs> the Harvard influenced upbringing. Well, you know, I find like, especially because of, because I'm vegan, the science has to come into it. I think it has to, because, um, people see it as a hipster thing or, um, you know, a, a fad or they see it as ridiculous. And so I feel like being able to back it up is really important. Um, unfortunately there is very little science, um, about strength and veganism. I'm trying right now to put together a study on that, but it's getting the funding for it is very, very difficult. Um, but my, my, I'm trying to put together right now, a, a strength study for <laughs> vegans, comparing vegans to non-vegans. It, it's, uh, it's tricky for sure. I, there's a funny Pavel story. So Steve Millis, uh, owner of Five Points, my, my, one of my main mentors, gave me my first shot. We were at uh, the RKC2, you know, back in the rec center in St. Paul. Yeah. And, and, pa- and Emily Bearden and Pavel sat down with us. And, you know, Pavel's got his rules about, you know, uh, you can't even eat chicken because it's like it's an inferior <laughs> animal. Like it has to be yeah. like, you know, beef and whatnot. Yeah. And, and Emily was like, hey, Pavel, Steve's Steve's vegan, you know, and has been for years. And Steve is is, is like you, incredibly strong pound for pound mm-hmm. uh, individual, longtime mm-hmm. vegan. And Pavel's line was something, you have my admiration, but you don't have my adulation. Uh-huh. <laughs> oh, man. Was- Pavel gives me so much shit about being <laughs> vegan. It's so fun. There was my favorite Pavel story. I think everybody's got a favorite Pavel story. My favorite Pavel story is I went to a barbell workshop of his in San Diego, which was like two hours from me. And I had this old um, RAV4 that broke down on the way. And so I had to, I was late for the for the class because my the car broke down and I had to get a rental and put it in the shop. And so by the time I got down there, I got, I, I had called ahead and let them know 
So I got down there about halfway through. And when I walk in, Pavel looks up at me and he goes, is your car vegan too? <laughs> That's awesome. Um, you know, and, and the strength side of things, I think the tricky part for most of us, if, if there's a negative side of vegan, I hate to say it, sometimes it's just the fact that the word vegan is in front of everything, right? Like mm-hmm. it's vegan this. It's yeah. that. Like, I think that is, is a hand. That's a good point. I never thought about it, that it, its own. It, it just sounds like I get it, but it's also like, you know, I think that is a little off-putting sometimes, especially because uh-huh. how you said, there are certain people that rally behind that banner so strongly mm-hmm. and I get it. Like everyone run your own race with that stuff. Yeah. But for me, when someone is like vegan, vegan, I'm like, can we just eat? Yeah. Like if you just put it in front of me and don't tell me it's vegan. It's like somebody was like, uh, these are really good vegan cookies. Well, are they good cookies or are they just good in comparison to other cookies because they happen to be vegan right um it's that type of thing and the other side of it is like let's face it you know people there's a lot of very unhealthy vegans i'm not saying comparison compared to other you know people that eat in other styles but you know a lot of people do it for ethical reasons and Mm -hmm. end up just in carb land right like yeah yeah bread and french fries and mm-hmm. uh fake cheese or you know the mm-hmm. constant quest for the the, the fake alternative mm-hmm. um and i think that's what throws a lot of people in terms of being vegan and fitness because it, it's mm-hmm. easy to tell somebody a healthy eating eating habit right really simple just have you know a, 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 some some meat some lean proteins and some vegetables mm-hmm. that's really easy to understand in 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 terms of a vegan diet, it's really hard to be that simple about it because you mm-hmm. have to make sure you're getting in particular, you know, your protein sources. Mm-hmm. And then we can start talking about the book a little bit into this because you have this great part where you talk about soy and, you know, there's, there's camps where, you know, soy is a great thing and, and camps where soy is the devil and mm-hmm. you've got, you know, what science there is on it, backing it up that like, look, mm-hmm. in moderation, you're not going to, you know, if you're a, a weightlifting guy in moderation, you're not going to mm-hmm. grow a vagina. You don't use those <laughs> words, but like, you know, it's not suddenly going to grow. Uh, you're not going to. And if you did, it wouldn't be a bad thing. Dave. No, I'm not saying it, but you know. <laughs> Vaginas uh, are awesome. I'm just saying. Anyway, truth. Um, <laughs> it wasn't meant as a, as a negative, but I think there, you know, there has been that fear of you know too much soy and yeah. you know and i think anything in moderation because i think the the byproduct of soy is that like a lot of people again they they go into all these single based protein sources as a vegan as opposed to having like more variety and i think variety helps mm-hmm. all the healthy habits in that respect especially not getting caught on the carb train well you need to have a wide variety of protein sources as a vegan because most of them are not complete protein sources. And so like an ex of mine was telling me he dated this vegan girl who all she ate were lentils. And you're not going to get everything you need from lentils. Um, and plus it's freaking boring. Um, so getting a wide variety of protein sources is, is hugely important um, as well as more, more interesting. <laughs> if, if you could throw out like three solid go-to protein sources, what would you throw out people start with as a mixture? Well, not, you know, not I necessarily do, at the same time, but you know what I mean. Like, yeah, yeah. No, I do a fair amount of tofu or uh, tempeh. Um, and so um, seitan is something I use a lot, but the fact of the matter is it's a really poor quality protein source, really poor quality. But that being said, I like it. So um, so I'll throw that out there because I like it. <laughs> um, and, uh, and beans, you know, I do a fair amount of beans. A lot of people say nuts are a good protein source. I consider nuts a good fat source as opposed yeah. to a protein source. I mean, they have some protein in them, but they're really a, a fat source. I know Mahler's, Mahler's a big fan on like um, uh, nuts. Like what if – I'm forgetting the name of the specific, the specific nut that I'm talking about that he talks about. But I know that he's big on certain types of beans and nuts for both protein and the healthy fats. Yeah, and you know when if you eat – you know, beans and you eat whole grains, then that'll pretty much complete the protein for you. You know, like cultures that eat beans and rice a lot, they tend to have a fairly complete protein source there. Cool. And tell us about the book. Well, it's, you know, I wanted to write this book for, I've been trying to write this thing for years now, and I finally got my ass in gear and got it done this year. Um, And it's, it's about to go to, to press. Amazing. Um, so there'll be a hard, to, there'll be a hard copy. There will be a hard copy. I'm putting it out first as an electronic copy, and um, and then and then the hard copy will come after that. Amazing. So it's going to be electronic first um, because I have to kind of figure out 
whether anybody wants this book before I put money into it. Um, but the, um, but the book itself, um, it came about because my clients, you know, I, I, I love to cook and I'm always posting pictures of stuff I cook because people ask me what I eat. And so I, I kind of put it out there because I want people to know that being vegan doesn't necessarily mean that you eat really crappy tasting food. Mm -hmm. Um, so people kept going, you need to write a cookbook. This is awesome. When are you going to write a book? And so I, I was like, well, I should write a book, I guess. Um, except that when I cook, I don't use recipes. I just kind of throw shit in the pot and well, not shit, but you know, stuff. Um, and, and then I call it a day. But, um, so that was the hardest part about writing this was I had to figure out how I did stuff. Um, so there was that, but then I also thought that it would be really, really important. And something that's kind of missing out there is a non cherry picked scientific backup of how can you do this healthfully and what are the myths about veganism that we can clarify and so I found that that is something that's lacking severely because there's a lot of books about veganism most of them are cherry-picked terribly cherry-picked um and so you know even something like the China study which is a fairly scientific book I mean it's it's a study I mean the whole book is a study but they leave a lot of important information out of there because it doesn't support what they want to portray. And that's problematic. And with the, with the, um, the movies, the documentaries, and with a lot of these books, it's, it's severely skewed towards somebody's agenda. They want, they want you to be vegan. And so they want to put the fear of God in you about it. Yeah. What what was the, there was a movie, there was a movie just came out on Netflix. What the health? That was it. Where all there was like one week, everyone was like, "Oh my god, this is the best. You need to watch it." And then in the next week, everyone was like, "This is seriously misguided in many ways." Mm-hmm. Like where it's like you know, and I think that is the hard part, right? Because you're trying to yeah. sell, you're trying to sell an agenda that matches. Yeah. Agenda. Not you personally, obviously, but like that's mm-hmm. a tricky part when it comes into film because there. Well, and I, you know, you got to hand it to them. They made a lot of people turn vegan, but. They made a lot of people turn vegan under false pretenses, which I have a problem with. And these are not people who are going to stay vegan. I promise you. They did not do it in a way that they understood how to do it. And they did it because of fear. And when you do something because of fear, it tends not to be lasting because you tend to, you need to do something because you really want to do it. Not because you're terrified of not doing it. I have this image of like people that changed, that turned vegan because of that movie. And then they realize like, you know, that they were a bit misled by the movie mm-hmm. and the Charlie Brown music playing and them just sad. <laughs> they're just sad sacking from like the local vegan wah, restaurant wah. <laughs> to, like, to McDonald's. They're just like, fuck it. I'm over it. <laughs> yep. 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 Just have a steak. <laughs> well, what do you think is like one of the biggest myths? Like in terms of when you're trying to talk to somebody about your point, right? Like mm-hmm. outside of the, you know, the animal awareness consciousness point of view, what, what is the, the hardest thing you sometimes see as a wall? The uh, one that I am bombarded with daily is that there's no such thing as a healthy vegan. See, I've never heard that. I've just, oh. I think I've always been aware that, and maybe just because I've always maybe again, in, in the scene, mm-hmm. there's always been people that I've been aware of. Um, I just know that a lot of people fall on bad habits, just like we do in any nutrition, mm-hmm. but it seems like without having, uh, you know, meats as a protein source, it's a little more difficult. Like it's easier yeah. to build, I'd say it's easier to build a deficiency as a vegan. Yeah. Um, than it might be if you're uh, even a casual, uh, meat. Oh, for sure. For sure. Absolutely. A casual carnivore, casual carnal. Yeah. Cash carn. Yeah. Hey, I think you just coined a term. I think I did. <laughs> So what do you say to try to fight that? I mean, it, basically, you're a walking billboard, I guess I would pretty say. Pretty much, yeah. I'm, I just kind of go, uh, hello. That's um, but, you know, I think people who want to believe that aren't people who want to be convinced otherwise. So it's kind of like arguing politics. You just don't do it. Yeah, it know? makes it easy to, to not try, right, if you just discount mm-hmm. it out the gate. Yeah. It makes it really easy to just be, no, nope, that's not for me. Yeah. But, you know, basically... For me, I come at them with science and facts, and they can choose to believe it or not. You know, it's not, it's honestly no skin off my back if somebody doesn't believe it. It doesn't make it not true, you know? Yeah. Um, I, yeah, but it's annoying. <laughs> yeah, I can only imagine too. I mean, I, I just think it, it's easy now to, you know, 
in this whole like political environment and, you know, this dividing lines of lefts and rights and safe spaces, I think it's easy for veganism and vegans to sort of get no matter what clumped on the one side of that. So Mm -hmm. it becomes like this frustrating thing where Mm -hmm. versus just like, this is a food choice. And I think there's a lot of like extra burden probably by a lot of people, uh, especially in different areas. You know, uh, I have to try to remind myself that in New York, um, we're not the average microcosm of most towns because um, mm-hmm. we're, we're, we tend to be a bit more varied that that's something you have to face with. But folks, uh, in terms of being a walk-in billboard for this, if you haven't seen any of Melody's videos, um, <laughs> she bends steel. She, uh, uh, how heavy was the Atlas stone you posted a video of? 120. Yeah. So she's picking up a 120 pound Atlas stone. Melody, how much do you weigh? If you don't mind me asking. About 105. Yeah. So <laughs> <laughs> you go out and try that. Go have a steak, you know, average trainer guy, and try to do that, right? Try to go and match your body weight with an Atlas stone and not blow out a disc. Um, Melody is just one of those people that's really impressive. I call her Sister Fury because I have the nickname Coach Fury, and her Twitter handle is Five Feet of Fury. Mm-hmm. And it was so nice to have another Fury. <laughs> I know, so many, so few Furies. So few Furies. I remember when I started, there was apparently another Coach Fury that didn't go by necessarily coach fury and i nah, fuck that guy he's no good <laughs> he might be great i don't know i think he was more of like a martial arts background mm-hmm. but i did notice like i googled something i can't remember why and there's another coach fury in new york what yeah i know imposter i'm like that's pretty that's gonna be a little bit of a stretch i wish imposter. them the best though i wish them the best though um yes you do do. so you mentioned that you haven't um competed in powerlifting have you have you has the book taken up your focus has the strong woman stuff really really busy and how is the facility going Uh, a few years ago i believe is maybe two maybe three years ago you were renting space like a lot of us do from a facility and things went south with a somewhat sketchy landlord or owner yep and that prompted you to open your space now are you still in the first space you rented I am. It's, uh, this is going to, I just finished my four year anniversary there. Wow. It has been four years. So yeah, I, in we, September, it was four years. I guess we met six years ago, right? We that, did. that summit was 2011. That's crazy. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. That's amazing. Um, and how has the, cause what I love about what you mentioned, making a point of the small space, I think it's, uh, I remember speaking with Artemis about this when they moved into their last space when they went, you know, about iron body and then, you know, they're in Vegas now. Um, she moved That's, to Vegas? Yeah, she's been there for like, I think, a year now. I didn't know that. I'm so yeah. out of touch. Eric got a job with Cirque du Soleil, and I believe Artemis wow. is doing some work with them as well. Badass. Um, yeah, they just got engaged. Whoa. What? Yeah, they're awesome. They hosted me uh, for a DVRT course out there, a level one, level two cert, and it was in their second facility, and it was a really cool spot, but it was, again, kind of like what you said. It was a much smaller spot than what they had. And I think, you know, a lot of trainers have dreams of owning their own space and having that control, especially if you've come from a big box gym. Mm -hmm. And I know in New York in particular that overhead is usually, you know, the death march of everything. It's just the the rents are so extreme that even, you know, what'd you say yours was like 700 plus? My rent? No, your your space, uh, square footage, sorry. 750. You know, I mean, that could very easily be like a 6,000 or more... (laughs) to six to $10,000 a month space in New York. Um, But I love that you were able to make that clean. Was that, was that a choice you were looking towards or did that become something you sort of had to do based on the situation with uh, the person you were renting from? I, um, I need my own space. I am a control freak. I, and also just from what I've seen, watching other people rent space from the places I've rented space from. It's just a freaking crapshoot. You know, people are, people were stealing, people were not paying rent. People were just being, you know, space hogs. And, um, there was a lot of drama and I just didn't want to deal with it. Um, I, I don't need more negativity in my life. <laughs> so I just, you know, if it's all up to me, then I don't have to deal with it. So, you know, it's a huge financial investment for me and it's triple what I was paying before, more than triple what I was paying before. Um, but worth every penny as far as I'm concerned. Um, yeah, I love you know, seeing 
I love seeing pictures of it. I mean, you have yeah. a, a great assortment of gear, a lot of it, which you've made, but yeah. you have pictures of a lot of like, you know, people crushing it there, just doing uh-huh. really impressive, strong stuff that I bet when they started training with you, they didn't think they were going to be doing a lot of the stuff you're able to post videos about. It's so cool. You know, this one lady um, who I've known for a little while, she messaged me out of the blue and was like, you know what, it's time I got healthy and I want to tear up phone books like you do. (laughs) So I was like, fair enough. So I started teaching her how to tear up phone books. She's like, she's bent two iron mine, iron mine, green nails already. Um, We're working on a 50 D right now. She's awesome. She's so fun. I suck at bending in the worst way. It's horrible at it. it. I mean, Uh, you're pretty solid. It's, you know, the thing with me is I, I remember I got one of those iron mine kits yeah. Like, I think it was actually probably right after-ish, close to after the Summit of Strength. Like, I've yeah. ways where I've tried to mess around with it. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, Dave Whitley, Iron Tamer, showed me a little bit. Mm-hmm. And then I was at a workshop, I think it was Indian Clubs, with Brett Jones and Phil Scarito, and they showed mm-hmm. me some. So I got, like, you know, the, this Iron Mind kit, comes with a bunch of nails. And yeah. I was able to get the green ones. That, that's the, the first one, right, is the green one? The white is the first The white. One. So I was crushing that. I think I got green, and then I was like, done after that yeah <laughs> and then i was like do i really want to spend more money on 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 these nails and it wasn't as easy in new york to just find like a, a home depot that I, at least i was right. aware of that you could just yeah. cut your own yeah um so like that that end of the grip that side of the grip training stuff has sort of eluded me to some degree but right i've I done a 40 to- i can do 40 d's pretty well but the 50 d kicks my ass i just can't i can't get it oh so it's amazing far. I've done two frying pans. I was pretty stoked on that. But nice, my, nice. They were like bodega frying pans. So I don't That's know, okay. I don't know how quality they were. And there was That's like probably right. zero technique. I think like uh, you and Tamer might throw up in your mouth if you saw Well, that's even did. cooler if you could do it with no technique. Yeah, Unless I didn't hurt. You just did it with brute strength. I, I didn't hurt myself. There you go. <laughs> At least not that I know of. There you go. You did it with brute, brute strength. No problem. And how do you find uh, when when you have somebody coming in that has an interest in that? Like, how do how do you do you find it weird trying to run a session when that's like part of the session versus like no. it's really easy it, to like casually run a program? It's very rare that I have somebody who's interested in doing that. Honestly, they think it's cool, but they don't want to do it. Um, so this is really the first person who was like, "That was a goal of hers." Oh, that's cool. So, yeah, every once in a while, like I'll have somebody who feels bad about themselves, so I'm like. I'm going to teach you how to bend a nail. And so I give them a training nail to, to work on. And, um, and when they bend it, they're like, they feel so good about themselves because it's fucking awesome. Yeah. Um, so I do that sometimes, but for the most part, my clients aren't all that interested so far in doing that. Just this one lady. But what I do with her is, you know, because she also has an overall goal of, of, of uh, health and weight loss and things like that. So, you know, we do her workout and then we save five minutes at the end to work on the bending stuff. Oh, that's awesome. I know uh, at my 40th birthday party, which was now half a decade ago, that's crazy. Uh, <laughs> came, through, came through this party and, and I brought a bunch of nails. And I guess they were the white ones to be the entry level ones. And uh, like pretty much everybody hammered at the party, uh-huh. bent the nail. Oh, that's awesome. <laughs> yeah, it was super fun. I don't remember all of it, but we all, there are a couple of pictures of people holding up bent nails. Cool. And, and then it eluded me after that. I got to give that another shot. That's fun stuff. I think a lot of the times in fitness, we get caught up in getting so good at certain things, like the big lifts, you know, mm-hmm. whether it's a kettlebell swing or a barbell deadlift or something, a bench, that mm-hmm. when you step outside and just try to find the fun stuff, like yeah. bending and tearing, um, yeah. for me, uh, kettlebell juggling, the rare chances I can do it, it's kind of hard to find a spot. Oh, yeah. You, you should know. talk to Mike Castro Giovanni. I don't know, Mike. I took the course with Gus Peterson and, and his wife, and it was Karen, and it was amazing. It was one of the most fun days we had out in the park. It was with well, uh, talk to Mike because he's doing a whole thing where he's uh, he's teaching it and he's going around the different gyms and stuff. You should get together with him. All right, I'll look it he's up. Awesome. Tell him I, I said hi. I feel like <laughs> we, might, we might be Facebook buddies. If not, we're going to be shortly. He's awesome. Um, but you know, finding those things that it's kind of shocking how much work goes into it, right? Like, uh, mm-hmm. I, th- I think people think like a quick bend is, is nothing, but I remember um, at that Summit of Strength, Tamer bent something that he hadn't uh-huh. bent before and the thing was actually hot, uh-huh. you know, because he was like, there was so much effort going into it that yeah. on a molecular level, it heated up. Even when, even when you, even if it's an easy bend for you, it'll get hot. Yeah. Because, yeah. 
it's kind of crazy and it's uh, full body. Like it's not just using one mm-hmm. item of it. Um, but whether it's juggling for me, I know you mentioned maces, you know, I, I've yep. Indian clubs have been a part of my training for a long time. So it's always mm-hmm. cool when, uh, I can throw that in, in somebody's program. Uh, yeah. I just actually, I have a client who's been having shoulder issues and I gave her some clubs and I taught her some moves with them and she loves it. She said her shoulders feel a lot better doing that. Yeah. People take a liking mm-hmm. to it. Um, mm-hmm. you know, it's, it's, some people get frustrated because to actually, you know, get the proper positioning and whatnot, it takes a lot of practice and mm-hmm. some people just feel so, so good after it. But I think it's also one of those where a lot of the rest of the room goes away while you're focusing on something. I, I, I equate a lot of this fitness stuff that I, I personally love into like skateboarding land. Like it uh, can be frustrating not landing a trick, but all I'm thinking about at the time is the trick. And I think it's really good when we have certain types of lifts that allow us to do that for potentially a longer period of time than just, you know, like a set of three or five heavy deadlifts or heavy presses. Like I think things like juggling and and mace work uh, allow you to be in the moment more. Right. Yeah. Cool. Well, Hey, we've been on almost an hour. What? I know. It's pretty crazy. Uh, I wanted to talk real quickly. So <laughs> your dogs have taken over the place um, and our dogs actually look related. Um, <laughs> I know that she looks the same. Right. Uh, how long has the, the Pitbull army been going on over there? Well, I just have one, but just she's, one. Yeah, I know. I wish I, I would love to adopt. I would, I would take four if I could, because that's the maximum number of dogs you're allowed to have um, without being a rescue, which is also on my agenda is, is to that, actually start a rescue, but that's true. I, that, that's yeah. like a California state law. Yeah. You, well, I don't know if it's California or just Pasadena or what, but, um, you're allowed to have four and then beyond that you have to be a rescue, but I'm, uh, I have it in my plans to start a rescue anyways. Just, um, that's, uh, it's on the agenda, but baby, Amazing. my, my people, I found her on the street. Um, and I don't know her history, but she's definitely been beaten. Um, mm. She's not a fan of a lot of men, um, and uh, which is fine because you know men are men are sketchy. Um, but uh, uh, she also um, she's a little unpredictable with other dogs. Where she gets along great with them, but she resource guards, mm-hmm. and I am a resource. <laughs> yeah. You know, uh, she's very, very protective of me. And then she also has this Mr. Bill doll. Oh my God. The Mr. Bill story. This is broke my heart. So my old dog, sweetie, Mm -hmm. uh, she died last September and she and baby, I found baby about three years ago. And so she and baby were together for those three years. And, um, (laughs) and sweetie's favorite toy was this Mr. Bill doll that she would, she loved it. And, um, Baby was a destroyer. She destroys everything. And if it's a plush doll, she tears it apart. So when Sweetie passed, you know, I always kept this doll way away from Baby. And um, when Sweetie passed, I just kind of put it in a drawer. And a couple months ago, I was like, what am I going to do? Keep a a used dog toy forever. So if anybody's going to enjoy it, it's going to be Baby, even if it's only for three minutes. So I gave it to her and she takes it from my hand and starts crying and she walked around with this doll for the rest of the day and cried like literally all day long i got some of it on video because i I was i saw the videos yeah touching so sweet and to this day mr bill doesn't have a mark on him she takes Uh, him to bed with her she takes him out to pee with her she carries him around like she loves this thing and she'll every once in a while she'll squeeze him around the belly and he'll go oh no and when he goes oh no she like she starts whimpering and then she takes him to the couch so he'll feel better. It's, it's oh, so Oh, that's cute. amazing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a, so Ramona's a rescue. We got her, it's funny, the first day I trained at the newer Five Points location several years ago, uh, right. Ramo, uh, Kim's previous dog that she had when we met, her, her bulldog Mason passed away unexpectedly while being walked. Uh, the walker oh, walked wow. him too far in the heat, not even that far, but just didn't read the signals and then didn't respond in an appropriate fashion. And a couple of months later, just as we were starting to think about, uh, you know, should we get another pup? Well, so I was outside of the new Five Points location and there was this gorgeous pit bull pup with another mix. Like she's a mutt. She's not 100% pit. And I went over and I was like, hey, is is, is she, you know, up for adoption? And they're like, yeah. And it turns out this place, Animal Haven, which is where Kim's fundraiser money is going to go, is not far from Five Points. But Kim wasn't ready. So, you know, 
Mm-hmm. We took breaks on it. We were looking around and then I saw the, the pup again, like, you know, a month or so later. And then finally, in like about a month after that, mm-hmm. we were ready and, and Ramona was still there and uh, she got along pretty decent with my Frenchie that I had joint custody of, um, you know, they, they put up with each other. Uh, I think they loved each <laughs> other in their own special way. Marty was like <laughs> a very grumpy old Frenchman at this point. And, you know, it's been amazing having her for us having a history of my previous dogs. Uh, my kid dog was a mutt, but my last two dogs were a Frenchie that we had for about 11 years and a, uh, a Boston Terrier that only lived for four years. So having like a full blown bigger dog, I mean, she's not big, she's in the 50 pound range, but just like a larger than a bulldog dog. And one that has teeth like that and actually has a snout was a little bit of an adjustment getting a rescue dog. It's been such a game changer, you know, especially knowing that, you know, she's, she's who knows what would have happened to her if we didn't pick her up, you know, versus when, you know, my, my Frenchie that I had, you know, after health issues with another dog, you know, we went to a breeder and he was amazing and, but, you know, would have found another owner probably easier than a dog we could have saved. So I've definitely found myself unexpectedly in the adopt, don't shop category. Um, Though I am not casting judgments if you guys get a Mm -hmm. dog from a breeder, but try to think about what might be going on behind the scenes there, even if they're good. Be like Melod and I go, go and like rescue. (laughs) Real Rescue three of them. Yeah, I wish we could have more. Um, right now, we've we've talked about with Ramona, but it's it's one, it's a money thing right now, and then it's another. Um, but Sister Fury, you're doing good work, and uh, keep it up. Is too, there man. is there anything you would like to say to the crowd as we're uh, wrapping this up? Uh, hi guys. nothing too profound i don't think no where can they reach and where can they find out about the book when it's released um i am very facebookable so you can reach me on facebook most of the time uh or you can find my blog at melody schoenfeld.blogspot.com uh or you can instagram me at five feet of fury one that's five ft of fury one or you can youtube me at five ft of fury one or or you can you know send a carrier pigeon (laughs) ravens with game of thrones ravens are so hot right now i know i've never seen game of thrones and i don't care (laughs) you know first the hair metal thing i know and then this I'm Here's kind of a question I had with, uh, I think this was with Annie Vo on the, on the podcast. Would you consider Warren a metal band? Hair metal. Uh, I, yes, but is that really metal? Well, it's, it's a genre of metal, just like, you know, speed metal is a genre of metal. Hair metal is, it's somewhere between rock and metal. Yeah, there's something where with Warren, like, I'll give you the Molly Crew. Mm-hmm. I'll give you the Cinderella. Like, there's mm-hmm. bands that I think, like, cross over and, like, count. And then there's Warren. <laughs> it's because Warren had a lot of radio. And, but so did Molly Crew, really. I mean, it's, Yeah, I mean, Molly Crew is huge. But if you listen to a man, like, heavy as fuck. They're heavy. I mean, Warren is, is not as heavy. But, you know, they're kind of in, their, in the same category as, like, White Lion or, um, you know, uh, Europe. You know, they're, um, they're metal, but they're not hardcore metal. They're, they're more, you know. They're like, if metal had, if, you know, there's rock and soft rock, there's like, this is like soft metal. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's like, I'm realizing like in certain bands I've like softened to over time where I'm like, all right, that was good. Like Bon Jovi's one in high school, I'd be like, ugh. Uh-huh. And now I'm like, oh, I totally get Bon Jovi now. I go for it. And then there's like Warren. I'm like, it's Warren. Sorry, guys. If anybody from Warren is uh, listening to this, uh, I still love I you, Warrant. You're okay in my book. <laughs> but I love that. I, I, except for the Geico commercial kind of killed it a little bit, man. I love the final countdown. Uh, that From song Europe? is so badass. Yeah, there's a point. It's when, the final countdown. There's yeah. a point when he's like singing where it really feels like he lost someone to space. And right. I, I just buy into it a lot. Right, right. <laughs> Uh, all right, folks. Hey, Melody, can you tell the listening audience to die mighty? I don't want anybody to die, though. But die mighty. It's my thing. Like, if you're going to do it, do it mightily. E- no. Exactly. 
Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, thank you so much for being on. Folks, uh, thank you so much for listening. Uh, big shout outs to the FTW for the metal music at the beginning and the end of the podcast. And Glenn Urieta, who keeps crushing it with these special uh, Kaiju Godzilla uh, sketches for the podcast. It's been great addition to it, to those. Props to you guys for listening. Thank you so much. And for Melody and all the guests for coming on. It's still kind of a dream that this thing's actually happening and people are listening to it. If you want to support the podcast, right, you can go to patreon.com, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash Coach Fury Podcast, where you can become a patron and that will allow you to donate, even if it's just a buck or two per episode or per month, uh, just to throw some love, uh, financial love my way. Uh, I'm going to continue to do it anyway, but it always feels good to be loved. Everybody have a wonderful week. Thank you. The Coach Fury podcast is created, owned, and produced by Steve Coach Fury Holliner. That's me for Fury Industries, LLC. Music by the FTW. Visit the FTW.NYC for merchandise, tour info, and the record. Artwork provided by Glenn Urieta. Visit glennurieta.com. That is G-L-E-N-N. U-R-I-E-T-A or at Glenn Urieta on Instagram and Twitter.